Please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 111. Psalm 111, this is our Psalm of the Month, so it interrupts our regular preaching through Luke's Gospel. And we survey the psalm as we sing through the psalm book that we might be able to sing this psalm with understanding. The Apostle Paul said what? That uh, he would uh, sing with the understanding also. And so we have preaching on the psalms that we may sing with understanding. And so with that then, turn to Psalm 111, and please give your attention now to the reading of the holy, inspired, and infallible, almighty word of God. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He hath showed his people the power of his works, that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word thus far. Let's pray for the preaching. Our good God of heaven, you are truly great. You are honorable, you are compassionate, and your majesty is unsurpassed and beyond the thought of any mere man. And so, Father, as your servant comes to preach the holy word of God that testifies to the wonderful works of God and the heart of God that is behind the works of God, we pray that your Holy Ghost would enable the minister to preach in a manner that can give glory to the God of heaven. You are worthy, O Lord, for such great honor. And so would you enable your minister to preach faithfully? And would you open the hearts, the ears, and even the eyes of all those who would hear the word of God preached, that they would give glory to God and that the fear of God would increase, the reverence of God would increase among our assembly, that we would better glorify our good God. And so, Father, now make us know in the preaching of the word that man doth live by bre- not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Do this for the glory of Christ, so that he may increase, we ask in his name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, Ye shall know them by their fruits. He has said that every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree right, bringeth forth evil fruit. What did he mean by that? He meant that a person's works expose something of a person's heart. A person's works expose something of who they are and what they are, in fact. Even the mouth, he said, follows the heart, doesn't it? For out of the abundance of the heart, he said, the mouth speaketh. But what the scripture demonstrates for us is that this rule actually goes beyond even the creature. But it goes and applies to Jehovah, and it applies to the living God himself. What we understand, beloved, is that to survey the wonderful works of God, whether in creation or in providence, will show you a God whose heart is honorable and gracious. It will show you a God who is compassionate, and it will show you a God who never forgets his covenant people because he is faithful His very name is faithful and true. What would then be the result if you understood this? For you who would seek out the word of God and the works that testify towards it, you would say, if this God who does such wonderful deeds is mine in Christ, I ought to boast in him. I ought to praise him. He ought to be uh, the, the praise of my whole heart as it is in the first verse. You would say, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart because this God is mine in Christ. 
As you look on the works of God, you find the heart of God and you would find the praise of God arise in your own heart. And so if your heart is slow to praise, the remedy is right here as well, isn't it? The remedy is found in searching out the Lord's works, especially to miserable sinners who deserve nothing but wrath, but have received grace from God Almighty. And so our theme is with that before you, to contemplate the Lord's works will be to boast in him. To contemplate the Lord's works would be to boast in him. And as you know, with our Psalm of the Month, uh, it would be a wonderful thing if we could meditate on each and every verse for the entirety of the hour. But we have to skim through it almost like a, a stone skimming over the surface of the water that we might understand it in its entirety. But that I think the encouragement is to work through these things maybe in your own time and dive deeper into the psalm. But I will give you, Lord willing, a way to look at the psalm and interpret it. So we'll divide our contemplation this morning under three heads, which are on your bulletin. First is to contemplate the Lord's praise. Second is to contemplate the Lord's works. And third is to contemplate the Lord's majesty. So first, contemplate the Lord's praise. For some context here, for that's helpful. Our psalm has no title, and it doesn't reference any particular historical events. And so we're not sure if it was David. We're not sure if it was another prophet who wrote the psalm. But what do we know? All scripture is God-breathed, and so it comes from the Holy Ghost himself. So the human author of the psalm does not concern us terribly, for its author is God himself. And the psalm was given for our praise. And like all the 150 psalms, it truly is timeless. But one interesting feature that you might want to note for your own uh, understanding is that uh, each line in the Hebrew, not in the English, but each line in the Hebrew begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic, in other words. That's an aid for the memory, perhaps, but it also shows you a completeness of thought. Right. Um, for instance, today we have the expression boys and girls, right? We say from A to Z. What does that mean? There's a completeness to the matter, isn't there? Right. And so what we find here is there's a completeness of thought. Uh, psalm 119 is probably the most famous acrostic psalm, isn't it? And what does that show you? It's a sign of this completeness of the word of God and the greatness of the word of God. And so that psalm captures that as a very comprehensive view of the word in poetry. Uh, Proverbs 31, we've been in that for a little while, right, in our series on the marriage. That contains an acrostic of the praiseworthy woman, as though what you need to know about the praiseworthy woman from A to Z is found in that chapter of the Bible. And so there's a completeness of the matter of Psalms 111, which is our psalm this morning, and its theme. And so with that, for some context, and maybe that's some guidance for you, the psalm begins with the words in English, praise ye the Lord. And so these four words in our translation are a single word in the Hebrew, as you might know, one you're familiar with, hallelujah, hallelujah, right? Now that's a rich word, and we ought to contemplate the word for a moment, I believe. In Hebrew, the word hallelujah is a compound word. It's made out of two, one word out of two, from halal, which means to praise, and then the shortened form of the covenant name of God, jah, is put at the very end of it, right? And so as per our translation then, praise ye Jehovah. It's plural, so praise you, ye Jehovah. But the word halal, I think we ought to dwell on. It does not just have the sense of to praise, which can be very superficial in the way we understand it in our vernacular. Contained within the word is a residue, which is a sense of why we praise, Anything, actually. And I think this is very insightful. It has the sense of to give glory and actually to boast in. So this is very important. And this is really the key to praise. When you praise Jehovah, you do it because he is your boast. Because he is your glory. You see that, friends? How will that happen? When you understand who he is. When you know who he is and who he is in relation to you you would praise him. And it would not be like pulling teeth, would it? Because you would boast in him. What you boast in, you most readily praise. Right? Um, you might turn to Jeremiah 9.24. I'm going to read it because I think the verse speaks well to our theme. What does that verse say as you turn there? But let him that glorieth glory. That word is the same here. For, that's found in hallelujah. 
that is halal or boast. Let him that glorieth boast in this. What? That he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. There is the fundamental axiom of praise. To understand and know Jehovah. And then you would praise him because you would boast in him. Let him that glorieth or let him that boasts, boast in what? That you understand and know me, he says, Jehovah, that I am the Lord. And that not just that I am the Lord abstractly, but I exercise certain qualities. What? Loving kindness, judgment, which is justice and righteousness in the earth. And not only that, I delight in these things. See, if those things matter to you and you would know who the Lord is, you would boast in him. This is my God. This is my God who exercises loving kindness. See, that's a wonderful thing too, isn't it? It doesn't just say, Jeremiah doesn't just say that the Lord is loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. And he is those things. Those are his attributes. But here's the thing. He exercises those matters, doesn't he? He exercises those things. That is, he, he exercises them how? In his works, doesn't he? He proclaims himself through his works. Our praise then is found in understanding this matter. And if we knew it, we would seek out his works, wouldn't we? We would study his works. We would look at his works. And we would see them all as an exercise of who Jehovah is. And we would boast in this God and we would praise this God. That's the key, isn't it, to understanding the incarnation even of our Lord Jesus Christ and Christian praise. Do you remember that the Apostle Paul cites Jeremiah 9.24 in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 31? Do you remember how he cited him? Listen to this carefully, and you can turn there if you'd like. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Do you see this? This is one of the most beautiful connections in all the scripture, beloved, where God takes the exercise of his attributes in Jeremiah 9.24, and where does he place them? He places them all in the person of the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, you find where is loving kindness exercised? Where is judgment exercised? Where is righteousness exercised? In Christ Jesus, and listen to those attributes, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is where your boast would be, isn't it? We find our praise and our glory in Jesus Christ as the manifestation and exercise of the attributes of God and the greatest of the works of God. Your praise arises, beloved, when you glory in and you make Jesus your boast. You can say you are a Christian, beloved, but unless your boast, unless your glory is in Jesus Christ, you will not praise him. And yes, you can actually reverse that and make that a very helpful diagnostic. That's actually very helpful as a, uh, think of this as you go through the scripture, right? If there's something you ought to do when it comes to the Lord, if you're not doing it, you can reverse it and become a diagnostic for your soul, right? It, for instance, the Bible says, if your God is what? Your belly and your glory is where? In your shame. If your mind is set upon earthy things, Philippians 3.19, will you praise the Lord? No, absolutely not. So if you are slow to praise the Lord, you have to ask then, oh, my soul, what is it that I am boasting in? What is it that I actually find praiseworthy in this world? Is it my hobbies? Is it my labors? Is it my spouse? Is it my food? Is it my money? Is it my labor? We have to figure this out, beloved, for many of us have made idols. Our boast ought to be in the Lord, that you may praise the one who is worthy of being your boast and your praise. I would also, this is not directly connected to the theme of our, of our psalm, so this is a slight aside, but I would also tell you that evangelism and your desire to speak to others of the Lord is connected to what you boast in too, right? Uh, these are some very pertinent examples, and you might have experienced them yourselves, but when you find a person boast in the, per in the company that made their phone, right, or you find that their boast is in their vehicle manufacturer, 
or their favorite restaurant or anything else in this world, what do they try to do? They praise it and they try to convert you to it. Isn't that right? Well, that's what evangelism is, isn't it? You find something that you boast in and then you evangelize for it. You praise it. Praise and evangelism then are inextricably linked. You can't separate them. You, if you have a heart that praises God, you will have a heart that is more readily inclined towards evangelizing and speaking of the one who is your boast. But your boast ought to be in the Lord that you would praise and also speak a good word of Christ. And that leads to the second thing to note about hallelujah, the word. It's an imperative. It's a commandment, right? Uh, it's in plural, right? If uh, here in the South or in Texas, it is essentially y'all are to praise the Lord, right? You all are to praise the Lord. It's not then an expression to blurt without meaning, which we can get in the habit of doing, right? But this is a hearty call to praise God. And remember, God's name is in it. It can usually be used in vain and break the third commandment. If you say it without meaning, let us praise Jehovah, right? As many unbelievers will just say hallelujah, but they're not meaning let's praise Jehovah by it. They're just meaning it as an expression to say. And well, we can do the same thing and we can take uh, the name of God in hallelujah uh, in vain. Well, to understand then the word hallelujah would make sense of the remainder of verse one, where the psalmist says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. In essence, then, you see hallelujah. It's a call to corporate praise. We all are called to praise God in the midst of the upright, of the assembly of the upright and the congregation. This is the church, of course, being spoken of here. And Hebrews 10 is very helpful for the, us here, right? We're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves. Ultimately, because God is worthy of that praise. And God says he desires it, Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the exhortation is simple when you hear the word hallelujah. Assemble together to praise God as the family and people of God. In fact, and this is a point of application, you, are, you ought to do it as often as you can do it. Right? We have two occasions on the Sabbath day to praise the Lord, where you can heartily boast that the Lord is your, is your glory and not your shame. We even have two prayer meetings now, um, different locations a week where we can pray and praise the Lord. In fact, and this is another point of doctrine, right? Praise and prayer ought to be linked together. Really ought to be. Uh, on that, have you ever thought on this, right? Because think about this. What is prayer without praise? Think of what you're doing there. Have you ever thought on that when you pray without praise? To ask for God's works, but not praise the heart from which such works flow, right? What a thing it is. God, I, I, I did rely on your character, so would you give me? Would you give me? But I'll never praise you for your character. What a thing it is. You often find needy Christians who wish to secure a blessing from God, and yet they are rarely in the house of God to praise him. What a strange thing that is to have a low view of the Almighty, like he is a dispenser of good things on cue. Let me ask him for his blessings, but I have no care to praise and boast in the Lord as the fountain of all blessedness. Imagine, because we're often a selfish people, imagine someone only came to you when they needed something from you, but otherwise were totally absent from you. I'm thankful the Lord is more gracious to us than we would be in such a case if we had the power of God. I think you would know how we would exercise such power. You are to resolve, though, beloved, to praise the Lord with your whole heart, not lethargically, but willingly and eagerly, whatever condition your heart is in. And we need to know this too, right? In our sorrows, we are not exempt from the praises of God. In fact, that's where we ought to go. Where else ought we to go? Sometimes, right, the praise of our heart will be full of cheer, because that is what our heart is filled with. Praise the Lord for that. Sometimes, though, the praise of our heart will be full of sorrow, for such is the praise of God in our heart. And praises for both are found in your psalm book. 
Has God not given you a word to praise like this in sorrow from the end of the earth? Will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Psalm 61 verse 2. Whether whatever condition your heart is, whatever is filling your heart, whether it is sorrow or joy, praise the Lord. And he has given you praises suited for both. And so as time is short, We'll leave that understanding of the root of praise, which is boasting in the Lord. And let's grow in that by considering our second head, which is to contemplate the Lord's works. The second verse is the key, which really unlocks our sermon's theme. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. So this is just a a truism, a truth of the word, that the works of the Lord are great. And they are to be sought out by you if your pleasure is in Christ. If you say your pleasure is in Christ, the command is seek out his works. Especially if you would apprehend and understand his works through the lens of the third verse, that his work is honorable and glorious. His work is worthy of praise. His works are honorable. Whenever you see the Lord's works, in other words, you must say this matter is honorable and it is glorious. Even things that are difficult for us, sort of uh, the sending of the reprobate to hell for an eternity. Hard things for us, we say, even as we are astonished by them, this work is honorable and glorious. A man or a woman can lose their entire family as Job did. And we say in astonishment, the works of the Lord are honorable and glorious. This is what we have to admit. I don't even know why. It is the case, but I am resolved to see it this way by God's help. But what are the particular works we are to admire and take pleasure in? Well, the works of God, as our children who go through the catechism understand, are the works of creation and providence, right? Especially the greatest portion of providence is in view here, which are his works of redemption. Our text says that those who praise are those who seek out these works and study them, whether by natural revelation in creation and history, but especially in special revelation through the Bible that interprets all of that for us. Think of it. Boys and girls, when you contemplate his creation, you marvel at his handiwork, right? From the galaxies of immense power down to microscopic organisms of such complexity that the engineers of this world are astonished and delighted by them. Even when David contemplated his own being, I want you to remember it was an occasion for his praise, wasn't it? I will praise thee. Why? For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. Think of this theme. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139. Would you praise the Lord for the bare but glorious fact that he has made you and he has made you well? no matter what condition you are in physically, will you not say, I am the Almighty's handiwork. I am not self-made. The the Almighty has made me with care and love and compassion. Men are prone to boast in themselves, aren't they? This is the the natural man. This is what the, the world has taught you. Boast in yourself. But how sad it is that they do not boast in the God that has made them terrible thing that's creation then the lord's works of providence which is all that he comes to pass how he governs his creatures and provides for them are praiseworthy as well even that he gives us our daily bread something we take so much for granted in this nation especially is an occasion to boast in god whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do what do all to the glory of god It's an occasion to boast that God has given me my bread, that God has given me my water. Whatever it is, however humble a thing it is. Recently, we we remembered Spurgeon's anecdote, didn't he, of, of the woman, the widow with the crust of bread and the glass of water. And she said, what, all this and Christ too? Astonished. And then there are the the works he does in history. As we consider history, we ought to study it as we study the creation. Just as we study the creation and we see God as its author, we have to see history with God as its author as well. What's the cliche? History is his story, right? That's a good way of remembering that, boys and girls. 
You have to see God's hand in everything, beloved. Have you ever asked the question, why is it that the world carries on? Why is it that evil men seem to have their uh, schemes thwarted all the time, just as uh, Haman had his schemes thwarted against Mordecai? Why is it that the church continues in the face of her great enemies? Because Providence's author is our God, and you need to praise him for it. What a security there is to the child of God in that thought when they know the heart of God. They bless the Lord for every providence. And they bless the Lord for all of history, which is inexorably leading to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shows us a good and gracious God. Even your own history. Flavel said it very well. If you can go through a record of your own history, believer, by the time you halfway get through it, you do not find yourself praising God how hard your hearts are. All of it comes from the heart of God. Whatever he has done in your life, believer, is honorable and glorious. You know that because the word says all those things are working for your good. Even when they seem hard and difficult at the time, every matter is honorable and, uh, and glorious to the child of God. And so all the works of God are in view, but this psalm is most concerned with his works of redemption. Verse 4a, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. And the Hebrew here for wonderful works is literally wonders. He has made his wonders to be remembered. And when the word remembered is attached, these are especially the works of deliverance. You remember every time he tells you to remember, whether it's in the Exodus or the cross, right? These are his wonderful wonders, his wonderful works. And I want you to see how deliverance is attached to the heart of God in verse 4. So we've just read his wonderful works to be remembered. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. What's the reasoning given? Why? The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. His deliverances arise out of a gracious and compassionate heart. Beloved, have you not seen that in our regular series in Luke's gospel? He frees the demoniac and what does he say? Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Right? Do his miracles and his mighty deeds not testify of that, friends? Did he save Israel from the Pharaoh just for a laugh? No. Did he go to the cross to save sinners for his own amusement? No. He did it because he is gracious and full of compassion. And in that, no wonderful work of God is greater than Christ's cross. The Lord of glory incarnated to be put on a tree and made a curse, to be humiliated by men and suffer the wrath of God Almighty for the sins of us who believe, that our sins may be washed freely by his blood, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Is there a greater work than the cross? Was the creation greater than the cross? No, It takes more work to save one sinner than to bring the entire cosmos into existence by the word of his power. It requires the Savior, the God-man, to cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To groan for three hours on the cross as the wrath of God is poured out upon him. To seek out the work of God in the cross leads to an eternity of praise. Worthy is the Lamb is where a meditation on the cross goes. The very thing that they are crying aloud in heaven. All my sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Is there not something to boast in there, believer? That all my sins are gone away by the blood of Jesus Christ. No more condemnation for me, a sinner. God come to demonstrate his love towards me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me, suffering the wrath of God I deserve in my place. Do you understand how all these concepts link together then in Galatians 6.14 when the apostle says, but God forbid that I should glory, meaning what? Boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you not see that theme unfold throughout the word of God? I boast in the cross, which is the greatest of God's works. Why? Not because it's a piece of wood, 
but because it shows me the heart of my God and I praise the Lord for it. How did Paul use that as Galatians 6.14 continues, right? Through that, when he makes Christ and his cross his boast, he says he glories in the cross and he says, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I the world. You see, he boasts in the cross. He boasts in that wonderful work of God and the heart of God to be very compassionate towards him, a sinner, even the chief. And now the entirety of the world is dead to him. And he is dead to the world because he finds no praise in anything else. He has said in other places that uh, everything else in this world, even the things that he used to glory in, is as dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is what happens when your boast is in Christ. You praise God and you live a life of holiness unto the Lord. What is so wrong with us, friends, that we who know such things, who ought to glory in such things, are very slow to praise and adore God? So, beloved, the exhortation is regularly seek out his wonders in the scripture and in creation and in history. Constantly meditate on them and constantly make them your delight. He said he performed his wonderful works not to be forgotten, but to be remembered, didn't he? Do you remember them? If the Lord interrogated you right now, what are my wonderful works that you delight in? What would you say? Where is your boast? Where is your glory? Where do you delight in me? Do you glory that you know me and I exercise loving kindness even to you? Why did he give us this Bible so that it may gather dust on your shelf or that you would seek out his works, that you would delight in them and you would remember them always? This book was given so that the world would have a record of his wonderful works and be saved by them. But these are written, why? that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John chapter 20. This is another reason we are thankful for the preservation of the scriptures. That the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Is the heart of God not even shown in the preservation of the scripture then? Right? He has kept his faithful word in every age so that we believing in the scriptures might have eternal life. This is the heart of God in the providential preservation of the scriptures. He also gave us the sacrament by which we may, by our senses, remember the Lord's work. This do, why? In remembrance of me, just as the Passover meal before it. And here is, I think, even something more to boast in the Lord. We are in the habit of forgetting all these things. And if you are like most of us, you probably have kept these things far from your heart and mind this past week from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And so we're in the habit of forgetting the Lord. But what the psalm also tells us is our boast is he never forgets us. He never forgets his people. He always remembers us. In the Bible, we find the very instrument that shows his commitment to always remember us. And what is that? It is his covenant. In verse 5, right, we are forgetful. He says to us, remember, and we're often admonished. Verse 5, he says, though, I promise you this, child of God, I will ever be mindful of my covenant. Ever be mindful of it. Why does he make a covenant? It in itself is an expression of his character, of a trustworthy, reliant God. He is holy. He is honorable. And so he makes covenants and he never reneges on them. Remember the Exodus when Pharaoh was trampling us underfoot. Exodus 2.24. And what? God heard their groaning. And God, what? Remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. Do you see that? What are we to do then? We are to remember his covenant ourselves. And we are to bring it to mind even in our prayers. How did Nehemiah pray? In exile. He said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Nehemiah 1.5. They're in exile. 
And he says, you've made a covenant commitment to be God to us. So will you keep your covenant, O Lord, and your mercy to your people? Does the church groan? Plead the covenant, people of God. Is a covenant child, and we call them that because they are children of the covenant, are they gone astray? Plead the covenant that you are a God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and deserve his commandments even to a thousand generations. You can plead it because it is a covenant as the cup of the New Testament signifies, which is ratified in the blood of Christ. What do we remember? Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament or covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. See, when you remember the Lord and you remember him, especially through the sacrament, you remember his covenant commitment to be God to us and to care for us. Why did the Savior shed his blood? Think on this, because God remembered his covenant and the Son of God was sent into the world. What are you singing of in verse 9? That he sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. What do you sing of when you sing words? What would you say if God asked? What are you singing of in verse 9 when, I, when you say, he sent, I sent redemption unto my people? Are you not singing of John 3.17? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You're singing of Christ. You're singing of the Lord sending His Son to save us who groan under our sin, that we who moan under the burden of our guilt and shame before God, we sing that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what we sing from the covenant. And when we search out the covenant in the Scripture, we find that it testifies of this heart of God towards us. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Is that not the substance of the covenant, beloved? And as a sinner, have you never pondered how wonderful that is? He will ever be mindful of his covenant is what we sing. And what does his covenant promise? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Sinners in Christ, what a blessing that is to you, isn't it? That God saves sinners as sinners. Right? He doesn't save the righteous and the covenant teaches that because it teaches that the sins and iniquities of his people, which what? What's the good and necessary consequence of that? That his people are sinners who commit iniquity. This covenant reflects the heart of God, doesn't it? This is what we understand, that the covenant, which is one of the works of God, reflects the very heart of God. There is such security in the covenant that all of its burdens, did it fall on your shoulders, believer? Whose shoulders did it fall on? fell on Christ's, not yours. And that theme continues in our verse 9. He has commanded his covenant forever. An everlasting covenant is what this is, right? He hath commanded his covenant forever. It is a covenant then that cannot be broken. Unlike the first covenant with Adam, which was broken in the same day, effectively it was made. Adam, that covenant broke, Why? Because Adam was responsible to keep it, not God, right? The responsibility was on Adam. But here in the covenant of grace, whose shoulders does the burden fall? It's on Christ. Christ keeps it. And to ensure it would never be broken, Christ, the covenant surety, was broken for us. That's what we signify in the breaking of the bread, isn't it? And so think on this. In, in this way, if he was broken for our iniquities, how could this covenant ever be broken? Right? All that are Christ's seed in Christ by election can never break this covenant because it is not theirs to keep and it is not theirs to break, but it is Christ's. He said what? Remember that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? My blood is exchanged for yours. This is the blood of the everlasting covenant. And when you see my blood in the cup, you know you are saved unto the uttermost. Drink ye all of it. And so in the first verse, then, we understand how it is 
that we can praise the Lord in the assembly of the upright? How is it that we can take our place as sinners in an assembly that is called the assembly of the upright? It is because Jesus Christ has cleansed us of all our unrighteousness. He has made us upright, not in ourselves, but he himself has clothed us in the uprightness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way, as we often pray before the corporate service or in the corporate service, that you would not look on ourselves, but look upon the face of thy anointed. Here, I think it's so wonderful for us who remember the covenant. Our provision is tied to his covenant as well. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. Now, interpret Matthew chapter 6 by way of covenant. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the, for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Our psalm is telling us, beloved, don't just see this as a promise. That would be enough in Matthew 6. But see it as an obligation God has bound himself to by way of covenant. He has sworn an oath that he will provide for you, believer. In Psalm 111, shows it to us. Beloved, why, as our Savior chastised us, are we so slow to believe? Why are we so slow to search these things out? This Bible is the book of the covenant for you, God's people, and you are to search it out. Search out his promises. Search out his works. Turn over every word in your heart and you will be stirred with love, adoration, and praise. And where will your anxiety, where will your care, and where will your worry go? They will be erased and replaced with praise if you would meditate on the works and promises of God. Praise will bubble up from out of your heart when you see these things by faith. Verse 6 even says that the covenant has a promised future for us. He hath showed his people the power of his works that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. Now, in Canaan's conquest, of course, he showed his people his power. A small, almost insignificant nation of 12 tribes come into a land, as Joshua and Caleb saw, was filled with giants, and he showed his people his power and gave them the heathen lands. But that's just a foretaste of what is coming, isn't it, beloved? What did our Savior promise? That the meek shall inherit the earth. He didn't say the mighty shall inherit the earth. He said that the meek, the lowly, the Christian will inherit the earth. And beloved then, praise the Lord that he has shown us his power. Power for who? The powerless. You can't help but go through the Beatitudes without seeing that, can you? The poor, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He has shown his power for such. And as a matter of praise then for us, as we take the gospel into highways and hedges, we who are insignificant, who go into lands and nations, even as missionaries do, into uh, lands that are controlled by the power of the heathen, we rejoice in that, that God will show his power in that, won't he? And he will have men who have nothing more than a book and prayer, water, wine, and bread. And he will completely conquer the heathen through these means. You think of this. How significant were Christ's 12 apostles compared to Rome? Absolutely insignificant. Yet they turned the entire world upside down. Why? Because God has shown his power through those mighty works. He has shown his power and he has promised the heritage of of the heathen. And what he has done once, he can do again. And you think of the ultimate reversal of this, right? God shows his power through Jesus Christ, meek and lowly, humble in his humiliation, and yet he confounded principalities and powers, triumphing over them in his cross. And now all things are put under the feet of Christ, even as we sang in Psalm 110. 
And why are they under his feet? As Ephesians 1 said, why, believer, are they under his feet? That he can be the head over all things for the sake of his bride. See, these are the matters of praise, aren't they? How often we forget them in difficulty and trials. And the Testament says as well, we've covered this before, that in the testator's death, what is his is ours. His inheritance is our inheritance, and we are going to be wed to him. And so we will receive the inheritance of the saints on the wedding day. Verse 7 says that the works of his hands are true and just. In other words, whatever he does is in accordance with the word of God. Whatever he does, we're thinking about providence. We think of the cross, right? These are all things that he has promised in the word of God. And whatever he does in history matches the word of God. And every promise of God will be fulfilled in our yea and amen in Christ, aren't they? Whatever remains in the word to be fulfilled, then he will do it. To which we must say, hallelujah. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So we have the covenant, but the psalm teaches us about God's commandments too. And we misunderstand them when we believe they are in opposition to his character. But they are the very expression of his character. Verses 7b and 8. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. The commandments are worthy of your obedience, believer. Why? They are good. They are just. They are holy. They ought to be your delight because they are an expression of God. All of his works are an expression of himself. Now, we don't follow them for our salvation. We can't be saved by them. But our obedience to our great God uh, from a heart that praises God, saved by Christ, is done just for the sake of obedience to the Lord out of gratitude for what the Lord has done. I have to be moving on as time is eluding me. Um, so we hear in this in this psalm, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. What I do not want to miss and skip over in the sermon is this. Preaching remains the central part of Christian worship because it is a deep searching out of the things of God to express the works of God so that after a meditation on them, you would better praise God, right? So if you delight in the Lord, you are to seek out the works of the Lord in the scripture and in the preaching of the word especially, you find that it leads you to praise. Otherwise, we couldn't sing with understanding, could you? You wouldn't praise with understanding. You would just praise an unknown God and what value is there in that? Well, let's conclude then with a contemplation of the Lord's majesty, our final head. Now, one of the reasons why the Lord is in some ways best understood by his works is because boys and girls, the Lord is a spirit. He is invisible to us, isn't he? Now, what did Jesus teach us about the spirit though? The spirit is known by his works, right? He's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. And then you know something of the wind. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has said the same thing goes with those who are born of the Spirit. You see the effects of the Spirit, but you will never see the Spirit himself, right? God is invisible. He is the invisible God. But by his works, then, you can know him and you can know his presence. God's works reveal God. In Calvin's Institutes, that's where we are, right? That God's works reveal God. Consider how his works of creation testify of God. Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. See that? The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So you see the works of God, and you know something of the power and majesty of God. And just before God confronted Job in the whirlwind, Elihu said, Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great and we know him not. Neither can the number of his years be searched out. Job 36. See, the works of God show us that God is great and incomparably great. And the more in all we ought to be of God as we study the creation. And the more that we realize that God is great and we know him not, 
we ought to be moved towards a contemplation of God. Isn't this the great problem with the secular scientist who is often in awe of the grandeur of creation, right? They will, they will bring out their, uh, their, their pictures of the latest space telescope, colorized usually, by the way, and they will put it before you and say, look at the majesty of the heavens. Look at how vast it is and how small we are in comparison to it. But the problem is they're not in awe of the God who has made such wonderful pillars of creation. And they do not give glory to creation's greater creator. Every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off, Elihu said. But they do not remember to magnify his work that they behold. When it comes to providence as well in verse 3, his work is honorable and glorious. Why? Because he is honorable and he is glorious. Think of how it is that the Lord sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Does it not speak of his nature and his goodness? Isn't that why he said in that text, be like your father in heaven who sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. This speaks of the character of God. Verse 7, the works of his hands are true and just. Why? He is true and just. Verse 8 says his commandments are done in truth and uprightness. Why? Because he is verity and upright. And so his commands are good and upright. We say with Paul, I consent unto the law that it is good. Why? Can you, can you make the connection? Why in Romans 7.16? Because the lawgiver is good. See, we don't praise the law just because it's wonderful. We praise the lawgiver who gives a good law. Many of the laws in our nation are terrible. Why? Because the lawmakers are terrible. And the lawmakers are evil. Godly lawmakers would produce godly laws. Evil lawmakers make evil laws. And God above, holy, good, righteous, and true, produces good, holy, righteous laws. And we must consent with the apostle. His law is good because he is good. And so, all that said, no works of his express his nature quite so wonderfully as his work of redemption. Verse 4, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Now I think as we've gone through this time in the psalm, you see how his works of salvation must be understood. When they come to us who deserve nothing but wrath, we see that his works testify that the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. You have to never see, we have to get this right, we love the gospel, but you never look at the gospel as the source of your blessedness. Otherwise, you will be like those who just want a ticket punch to heaven, but are never found praising the Lord, right? You must look, where is the gospel's source? It is found in the compassionate heart of God. That's what cheers the child of God, that his heart gave us a covenant of grace, that his heart gave us a redeemer to suffer for sinners who spat at him, that his heart caused the redeemer to pour out a fountain of blood for uncleanness, and that his compassionate heart has placed that same Jesus as ruler and monarch over all things for the good of his bride as the God-man, as in the prior Psalm, Psalm 110. Psalm 86 reminded us, Several months ago, it's almost uh, yes, uh, two years ago. Rejoice the soul of thy servant. For unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Do you know that? That he is plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon him. So call on him. Even if you have believed the gospel, call on him today when you have need of mercy Whenever you need it, when you need to be cleansed of some great filth, of some sin you have committed, believer, remember the character of God and the heart of God that makes precious promises and has given us a Redeemer to suffer and groan who said it is finished. And your heart, when you believe that promise from God and you go to Him in repentance, will find praise. It should anyway. It should anyway. Because the redemptive works of God, the forgiving works of God, flow out of a propitious, forgiving, merciful hearts. What are you to do to remind you of this? You are to remember his works. That's what the psalm says. We might sing it before communion. Do you see his works as a window into his heart? 
Will you see his works as a window into his heart? When you read that he liberated his people out of Egypt, right? You know, what is the, it's so fascinating. First time I, I watched that uh, um, old movie, uh, Charlton Heston of Ten Commandments, it became somehow a story about freedom, civil freedom, right? No, it is a window into the heart of God to save his people from every oppressor who oppresses them and keeps them from the praises of God. Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may praise me. And when you read, especially of how Jesus groaned on the cross, you have a window into the heart of God. To contemplate then his redemptive works, beloved, is to contemplate the very heart of God. And of course, if his works of redemption most clearly show us his heart, the Redeemer himself, most clearly shows the heart of God. What is it to look upon Jesus? Is it not to look on the Father himself in a way that we as mere men and women can grasp? Did he not say, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father? And so if you open up the Gospels, right, and you find this Jesus so compassionate, so tender, so merciful, what are you, what are you seeing? You are seeing the heart of God and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity come in flesh. For God, who hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 4, 6. Moses cried, show me thy glory. How did God show us his glory in the face of Jesus Christ? And so where is your boast to be? To go back to the first heading, let no man boast in God and praise God unless he does it in Christ. Well, even as he is gracious, and we'll end with this talk, he is also holy and to be revered. Verse 9, holy and reverent to be feared, that is, is his name. We are to admit in verse 10, in the conclusion, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, right? If you understand the heart of God, you would do the commandments of God and the fear of God that is in the reverence of God. And you will note, this is a side thing, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, they all have, all the wisdom literature says that your wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. This phrase is found in all those books in one variation or another. The works of God then testify that our wisdom would be found in fearing the Lord, right? When you think on the Egyptians drowning, when you think on all those like Judas who didn't flee to the Savior, and we know what their end will be, we are to be in awe and in fear of a God like this. When we read Romans 9, that there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and we are saved by this God, we are to be in fear and awe. And when we remember that for the sake of our sin, the Son of God himself was not spared, that God may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus, we are to have a holy reverence of such a holy God as this. God is worthy to be revered. The psalm concludes with the line, his praise endureth forever. Believer, take heart. His praise will always endure and there will always be a people to praise God. And if we are to use good and necessary consequence, then you yourself, believer, will always praise God because his praise endures forever. Praise begun in the heart of a true Christian will never end because God will have his praise from you endure forever. And so we return to our first verse and see the command again. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Do you understand now why you ought to, with your whole heart, praise such a God? So who here, after this meditation, will resolve to make their entire life praise unto God? Who will make him their boast today? What else can you compare such a God to? Who is worthy of being made your glory and your boast? Don't leave this place without the right answer and without your heart resolved to boast only in Christ. Resolve to say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ because it is that cross that testifies of the heart of God. Do the saints in the Revelation not all admit, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why is he called the Lamb? 
Is it not because of his work of redemption? Beloved, the saints testify that the works of the Lamb make him worthy of receiving honor. So what stops you today, believer, from making him your boast and your praise? Put it away, it is an idol. May the Lord open our hearts to praise he who is worthy of it. Amen.